This is the Tame Aperture Podcast. Open the five bay doors, please, Hal. Hello, Hal, do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to the Tame Aperture Podcast, where we talk all things movies from first-time directors, indie films, art house, and much, much more. Today on the podcast, we talk the 2019 black and white film. The Lighthouse from Robert Eger, starring William Defoe and Robert Pattinson. The film had its world premiere at the 72nd Cannes Film Festival in May of 2019 and was released wide in the same year. Principal photography took 35 days in the spring of 2018 in Nova Scotia, Canada, on a budget of $4 million and grossed a box office of nearly $19 million. It was nominated for the Best Cinematography at the 93rd Academy Awards, and The Lighthouse is the follow-up release from Ager's debut film, The Witch, that rocked the cinema landscape back in 2015. I'm Gabe Vienendahl, filmmaker, film instructor, and movie enthusiast, and I'm joined by always Alan Martindale, veteran podcaster and editor. Alan, how the hell are you? Good. This, this is a weird one, man. You like the weird- black and white homage to this one? Do, it, it fits so well. With the aspect ratio... What is that? A one nine to one aspect ratio or something like that? Red, it's a it's a one point one nine to one. That's what it was. Yeah, one point one nine. Yeah, it's it's a trip, man. You you chose this film. Now, tell me about why you chose it, and did you like his directorial debut, The Witch? Uh, first of all, I chose it because we were talking about uh, uh, Yorgos Lanthimos. Our, and our favorite, his, one of our favorites. One of our favorites. And his new project that is in, I guess it's in pre-production. Uh, and it's a Frankenstein-esque tale starring Willem Dafoe. And I've been wanting to watch The Lighthouse since it was released in 2019. And I thought this is a perfect chance to do it. We get a little Willem Dafoe preview. We get a little uh, Robert Eggers. I love The Witch. I thought The Witch is outstanding. Uh, especially for a horror movie, he he managed to toe the line of slow burn and old time. The whole, I mean, if, if you've ever seen The Witch, the whole thing is spoken in old English. And he's still- hear my answer to that question. Have you ever yeah. seen The Witch? Yeah. I started watching it and then I stopped. So disappointed in you right now. <laughs> I mean, you, you you stopped watching The Witch. I think we've talked about this, actually. But you stopped watching it. It didn't hold your attention? Was that what it was? I mean, I feel like I need to go revisit it, after, particularly after this. I enjoyed this film. We'll get into that. Um, the Witch did not keep my attention. And mm. I think I had a... It's all, look, it's spotty. We know that when you watch a movie, it's based on a lot of different nuances. What you're feeling that day, what you're thinking... What's distracting you? Are you like, you know what I mean? So I need to go back and revisit it admittedly. But the first view, I had a hard time. My wife said she liked it. So I got to go back and watch it. But here's the thing about The Witch 
if you're going in thinking it's going to be a, a, a typical horror movie, you're going to be just disappointed. Yeah. Never going to. That's not what it is. It's too good to be a dumb horror movie. To me, it kept my attention the whole time, despite the whole old English thing um, in the setting and all that kind of stuff. I like what he does, though. I like how he can he can spin a tale that's very intriguing and menacing with with in in one setting, essentially, with very few characters. Yeah, that's and absolutely you chose this one because our 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 look into Yorgos and then William Defoe. Now this is our second William Defoe that I can think of off the top of my head. This one's much better than The Loveless. And uh, the first was The Loveless, your favorite movie of all time. Uh top 10 at least. At, at, least, top 10. at least. Just it's not a good I movie. Mean, it might be pushing top 5 for you. <laughs> Uh-huh. Might be, might be. I'll have to rewatch it and see if it holds up. You're like, I'm going to watch it. This no, so yeah, this film. Uh, let's get into it. Let's talk about. Let's talk about the uh, the lighthouse. I first off, I'll just say, and then I'm going to let you kind of spearhead this thing because see, have you seen this more than one time? This is the first time I've ever seen it. Okay, I was wondering if you had seen it multiple times. This was the first watching, and ironically enough, just with things got busy, I was piece billing it right. And this is not a movie you want to piecemeal view. I started, I, that's interesting you say that because I started doing that. And then I realized this is never going to work. I can't, I can't watch the film this way. So then I, I had, I carved out time and I actually sat down, put it on the big screen and watched the whole thing. Yep. That's the way I think going into this for anybody listening, you got to watch it that way. You know, it can't be one of those things where, oh, I'm going to watch 20 minutes here of this segment. Then I'm going to get pulled away, watch another 30. You'll definitely lose interest and you'll probably never return. But if you give yourself the dedication, you need to sit down. That's the way to view it. And admittedly, I made it through the piecemeal view, but I regrettably think that it was detrimental to my takeaways. Probably. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's um, this is this almost feels like a play, like a theater production uh the way the way the characters are the the way the tension's built the ebb and flow and the, and the back and forth between the two it, it feels like it's almost like something that should be on stage and even even the i think even in the blocking and the camera assignments it feels very stage like i mean there's not a whole lot of camera movement you have a lot of static shots so they're just staying in not that there isn't any but a lot of it's just those static shots where you're staying in frame and it's not a lot of movement and you're kind of observedly back a little bit. You're not exceptionally close except for a few moments that you, you do get close-ups. So it definitely has the, the, the theatrical play vibe to it for sure. And it just, it, it feels like old cinema and you see homages all the time to old cinema, but I, I always feel like there's something missing. This feels like it could have been shot and filmed other than the sound design. Right. Uh, right. Other than that, it feels like it, this could have been shot way back, like in the 20s or something. Right. And they did a great job putting it together that way from a technical st- standpoint. One of the reasons we're, we're doing this Zoom call in, in, our, in our aspect ratio that we are trying to match what they did. It definitely feels like it has that vibe. It's got the 20s vibe. That's interesting you say that because a lot of times you'll see, you know, we'll take, uh, even though they're comparatively different films, 
look at something like the artist, which is meant to take place in that time frame. They don't, they're not trying to emulate the look of that time frame. That movie didn't feel like an old silent film at all to me. And I don't know that that was their purpose. I'm just saying in this case, you're right. Like he definitely is the way they shot it, the cameras they used, the lenses that, that they used based on some reading that I did. They really tried to get that feel of a 1920s film, even though it takes place earlier. Let's be clear. It takes place in the 1890s, but we got to remember that really film isn't even part of history until the mid 1890s. So you can't even go back, you know, but they're, they're going back as far as they can, I would say, to try to emulate that look or feel. It's, and that's, I, I, I don't even know what I watched when I, I, watched. I don't either. Here's what I kept referring to Alan. I kept going a racer head. Yeah. I mean, it kind of, there's, there's a lot of aspects of a racer head. You know what? I'm glad you said that because I was trying to connect when I'm, when I was watching it, I was thinking this is reminding me of something in particular, not just old time cinema, but, and I think it's a racer head. I think that's what it was reminding me of. And I, the whole story, I don't really know what I watched, but I know I loved it. And I think a big reason why I loved it is, is that old cinema feel and it, it's aesthetically pleasing in every sense. Um, from, I mean, you feel like you're there from the sound design to the production design to the acting. I mean, everything is just aesthetically pleasing if you're a movie buff. It almost feels like this was made for movie buffs because it, it just, it gave me that feeling like when you're watching something really good and really intriguing. But the story, I honestly didn't really care all that much about the story. I'm not saying it wasn't good, but that almost came secondary to my enjoyment of the film. I didn't know what the story was. I mean, I felt like there was blending together of, of mythical ideas. Uh, there was blending together of philosophical theories. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things going on, but I'm not even sure how to interpret it. This is definitely a film that's going to take multiple viewings to really start to get an understanding or at least a, a better formulated opinion about what it is. You know, that question that we asked, what does it mean? Well, I, I, I'm going to just jump. I'm going to jump ahead and say, I don't know. I can't answer that question um, because I wasn't sure what I was supposed to, to pull away. But I was I mean, I was engaged. I mean, I was watching it. And I here's the thing about it for me is I thought this I had watched. I, I knew nothing of this movie. Like zero. So when you sent this one over, I know I watched no trailer. I didn't really even know that this movie existed. Oh, right? really? No, okay. no. I hadn't, hadn't done any research, hadn't looked into it, didn't watch trailers. Um, didn't even know that Eggers was the director of The Witch until after I watched this movie. I did some back, you know, some back search. And um, going into it blindly was refreshing. And because we are film buffs and we enjoy movies, that's what made the, that's what drew the attention. I kept interested. Here's the thing he does for me that I don't, for me, he didn't do at least in my first attempted view of the witch, which is, <laughs> which is he kept so much build of like curiosity around what is going on. Like there's so much, there's so much 
curiosity build here, so much uncertainty surrounding the story, so much mystery as to what it is we're even, what world we're even going into that I think it helps build the anticipation. So even though I piecemeal viewed it, he left enough of that anticipation when I went back to finish the second segments that, you know, and third, I was uncertain still about what was going on. So the anticipation was built. He's good at that thing of, of like building uncertainty and like, what the hell am I watching? And that's why I reference a racer head. Cause when you first view a racer head, that was the same feeling I got watching that movie. Yeah. I, this one, I think I have a better grasp on than I do a racer head. That's funny. Cause I'm but, the opposite. I felt like, I, yeah, okay. I felt like I walked away out of a, if you go back and listen to our podcast on a racer head, it felt like we had a pretty good analysis and takeaway of what that was saying. I'm gonna I don't know where to go here. I'm going to have to go back and re-listen because I, I don't remember enough about Eraserhead to, to even be confident at all. I just remember being weird out the whole time. That's all I mean, it's fair to say that the comparable here, and I don't want to get overly comparable between the two. The one takeaway I do have is we've got some kind of push towards I don't know whether it's sexuality or there's some kind of angle there that's go. I don't know what and how to define it even, but there's something going on. To me, the lighthouse is really about lighthouse keepers and what would go along with that job. <clears throat> to me, I don't know anything about that job, but it seems like this would be pretty damn accurate. Because, I mean, isn't it historically or, or isn't it widely known as the most lonely job on the planet? Or maybe that's just the Simpsons telling me that. But that's what I've always heard about being a lighthouse keeper is that it's the most lonely job on the planet. And when you're isolated and trapped with one person, you're going to have all of these crazy, weird interactions and these ups and downs and, and all that. So to me, it really is just kind of like these two dudes in isolation trying not not to go completely insane and murder each other. Yeah, I think they're definitely, I mean, they're trying to keep their sanity, but it's it's definitely filled with over-sexualization. I mean, there's masturbation. Over, well, and that's a, that's what I'm thinking. Like, if you're alone on a on an island, like an island trapped with one dude, I mean, that's going to be an issue that comes up, right? I mean, oh, especially yeah. I mean, in 1890. Well, masturbation, like, homosexuality. I mean, right. there's a lot of factors to consider. Well, not only that, but like the, the farts, like the farting and, Those you know, hilarious, by the the way. cooking and that kind of like, it just seems to me like this is all natural stuff that would come up. Yeah. And especially if you're Robert Pattinson, who I would imagine uh, his character is probably in his late 20s. You know, you're going to have a healthy sex drive and you're going to be lonely. And so you're going to have these issues come up. Yep. And so you're going to find a little figurine of a, of of a, a mermaid. mermaid. <laughs> you're going to want to masturbate to it, which is the weirdest thing. So there's just lots of weird to me. It's just about being lonely and all the, the weird issues that that would bring up. Yeah. I mean, it definitely, it falls into, you know, to that, that, that idea of the, the summary or the synopsis of the film, which is two lighthouse keepers trying to maintain their sanity while living remotely in a mysterious new England Island. I mean, that, that is there. And then it's got these twists and angles of complete, I don't want to say, I mean, it, 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 it deviates from that too, because then you're entering into 
all these mythical type creatures. We have mermaids and then the birds have something to do with something. And the Thomas who's played William Defoe is, is this archetype Poseidon Neptune character. And it's all these weird integrated ideas into the baseline story of two guys trying to figure shit out on a lonely Island. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I loved Willem Dafoe's character so much. Like I just, I loved because you think of all the, all the, like the sea, the sea guys and their, their cliches and all the stereotypes that go along with it. But if you, if you're him and you've dedicated your life to looking after a lighthouse, you're not married, you don't have kids. This is your life. I mean, your whole world, you're going to be superstitious because the sea is so volatile and you have no control over it. So you're going to want to find some sort of way to control it. So you're going to, you're going to have these superstitions. Don't kill, don't, don't kill the seabirds. Uh, you're going to like, it's bad luck to leave a toast unfinished. You know, just all these things that he has, you're going to have these superstitions. And not only that, but his whole narrative is just guided by ocean legends and poems and, and it, it, it's just, I loved, I just loved that, man. Like, I didn't realize how much I really enjoyed that type of thing until it was like just slammed in front of my face. And Willem Dafoe was just delivering these crazy monologues with fire in his eyes. And it was just so much fun. The interesting thing here is that Eggers, because so Robert Eggers directed the film, his brother and him wrote the film, Max and Robert. And there's a thing in the research that says that, that it was an attempted um, contemporary take on, a, on an Edgar Allan Poe poem called The Lighthouse. Interesting. I don't think I've read that one. I haven't either. But it's, it, he said, finally, like, it doesn't really bear a lot of resemblance to the poem, but that was the, the primary inspiration at the beginning. And you can see that. And the reason I bring that up is because what you're saying, there's all these fantastical poems and he's reciting all these, all these pieces of literature I think that's still, even if it's not a direct pull from those things, you can see where that inspiration might come from based on all the characterization and particularly of Defoe's character. And I agree with you. He is, he's great. Like, here's an interesting thing. This movie is a complete, not a vindication. It's like this testament of how good these actors are. Yeah. Without it. I mean, okay. Pre-production. You have this, this script written. You sit down. I can see casting Defoe in that role. But if someone, if a casting agent or someone comes to you and is like Robert Pattinson, the Twilight guy, we want to put him opposite Defoe in this, in this character uh, film where they really have to go at each other. Right. I mean, I'm not even for a second even thinking that Pattinson's going to be able to, to carry that load. No, the only thing here's the, here, he made a great transition though, because he, he was a vampire. <laughs> That's yeah. what he was. Right. right. He was, uh, is it Edward? He was Edward, the vampire, the twilight series. That's what he was. He's in a Harry Potter movie. Like he's, he's in that, but he made a transition because come around like 2017, 20, he made a movie that I really enjoyed called High Life. I haven't seen it. If you, if you get a chance, go check it out. Now, this came out, this was the movie just before The Lighthouse. Okay. It's called High Life. And he is, uh, he's exceptional in the movie, right? 
So I agree with you. I agree with you. If you're looking at the script going, okay, we got Defoe to play the crazy sailor. And then who do we get to play the young stallion? <laughs> you know, the guy to come in and really let's get Robert Pattinson. And if you're thinking Edward from Twilight series, maybe not. But if you get a chance to watch a couple of his films after Twilight and before The Lighthouse, you might see the, the senses might, might set off. Yeah. But I will say, I, the only thing I knew about him, I knew he was going to be Batman coming up. And I knew, obviously, that he was the Twilight guy. And this dude, I have nothing but respect for him right now. Because he went from being, and again, no fault... No fault of his own, in my opinion, but he went from being kind of a joke because he was a part of that Twilight franchise to putting up one of the best performances I've seen in a very long time in a movie that only has two characters throughout its entire runtime. And the other one is Will and Defoe. Like it could have been so easy for Defoe just to absolutely overshadow him and, and play him, you know, and just, just, just cast him in, in darkness. Yeah. But yeah. Pattinson stood up and he, oh man, that dude, I have so much respect for his talent. I had no idea he had this in him. No idea. I mean, there's scenes there where it's, it's a solo isolation shot. It's him by himself. Once again, and we talk about this sometimes it's like, it's hard to carry the lens. It's hard. Very. And to evoke emotion from a viewer, he's great at it. By the way, I have to correct myself. I said high life. I meant good time. Good time. Okay. Good time. Sorry. I, any corrections out there? The movie I'm referring to is a Safdie Brothers film called Good Time. He is in high life, though. He is in high life, but I, I, I was referring to good time. Okay. Good time. I'm going to look and that I think that's from, that is from the Safdie Brothers, which did uh, that Adam Sandler film like a year or so ago. I can't remember what it's called now. Uh, uncut gems. I haven't uncut, seen it yet. Uncut gems. It. Anyway, but good times, good and pattern. If you see that film, you go, Oh, this guy's got chops. Okay. You know? It's, I, I mean, it power. I mean, obviously if you're cast in any big franchise, no matter how dumb it might be or how not, I don't want to say dumb, but it, no matter how young adult bookish it might be, uh, you obviously can act. There's yeah. no doubt about that, but yeah, just yeah. The, the, I mean, the range from him being able to play Edward, whatever, sparkly vampire and then being able to play this dark disturbed character in in this setting is unbelievable this would be a, a, an acting job i i don't know there are probably a i couldn't name more than five or six actors i would ever dream to dare put in a role like this you look at that and and, and uh you look at that scene towards the end when he when he's basically it, it it's um they're they're drunk again they start <laughs> by the way we'll talk they they get drunk a lot and they dance together it's hilarious uh when 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 william defoe does an irish jig and then they slow dance together i started laughing my ass off and uh but you know there, that scene towards the end where he loses it and starts yelling at him about his farts and about how how you know decrepit he is and and then he starts crying and it's right before the big fight where they really start punching each other. Yeah. That scene, like, he's so good. I don't know in the last, if you were, and I mean this, if you were to look at 10 years of acting over the last 10, after the last decade, that scene's incredible from a pure performance standpoint. 
It's outstanding. It was so good. I mean, usually when I'm, you know, and I think most movie buffs are, are this way, when you're watching a really good performance, you can appreciate the performance while it's happening. You right. can say yeah. to yourself, damn, this is really good. His performance in that scene in particular was so good. I forgot to even notice how good it was. Like yeah, I was, I know, so exactly, I know exactly what you're saying. And I it wasn't exactly until saying. after when I'm like, holy shit, I, I can't believe what I just saw. Yeah, like, only now in the analysis, when I look back on it, I go, and that doesn't mean, I mean because you're so immersed in it at the time. Right, exactly, exactly. That's tough to do for, for people who watch movies a lot. It's really tough to, to separate or to get them that, that engaged in, in the film. And I was just, I love this. I love, I, do, I just love this movie. What's, so, uh, let's talk about the sound design. The sound in this is from the very beginning. I mean, everything about it is from the foghorn to the sound design, from the, from the lack of sound at times when they cut the sound out, uh, the music, everything about it is, is just A+. Plus. Yeah, because I think it's fair to say the, uh, we, you know, the acting's primary, but it's also fair to say that, to me, the sound drives this movie. No doubt. If, if we don't have what we do, it doesn't, even as great as the performances are, it doesn't resonate the same without those deep visceral pitch tones. It helps build narrative suspense. It's like ethereal and airy. It dominates the story. And, mm -hmm. and it, I read, if you're, if you're watching it, we were reading it, they wanted, the, the producers wanted him to use or a more uh, Ingmar Bergman, a more, uh, or not Ingmar Bergman, I'm sorry, a more... Uh, What's Hitchcock's composer? Do you know who oh, I'm referring to? Yeah, I know who you're talking about. I can't remember. Drawing a blank. But they wanted that kind of striking chord compositions, right? Those kind of things. And, and, and he fought back on it and he won because if it had been that, it wouldn't have the same, the same feeling. This one in... <laughs> Bernard Herman is who you're thank thinking you. of. Bernard Herman was who I was. Uh, yes, thank you. The, I, I said Ingmar Bergman, who's a Swedish film director. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I think the music that they went with, it had a very. I, I think it could have worked with with like the strings and stuff like that. I agree. I agree. I agree. I, it could it could have worked. Right. But then again, a lot of things can work, and then a lot of things can be elevated to another level. Exactly. And that's exactly what this was. I mean, it wasn't over the top. It was exactly what you needed. And it, it really did drive those intense scenes. Like there are times when, <laughs> when Defoe is kind of, you know, he's, he's chewing the scenery a little bit, you know, but not in a bad way at all, not in a, a distracting way, but there are times when the sound design and the music really helps sell what he's going for because if, if they did not crank up the sound designer did they not use you know that the perfect score at that moment it could have felt a little nick cagey you know it could have felt a little over the top but i really think it helped it didn't drive the narrative it didn't drive the feeling but it, it enhanced it. it it really let us know this is where this character is this is where we are as an audience i i really i just thought it was they nailed it Okay, I got a question. We hit the 40-minute mark, and Patterson's character witnesses a mysterious monster-like tell above the lighthouse. Up to this point, he's, by the way, he's the second hand. 
He doesn't get to go to the beacon, to the light. He doesn't get to go atop and keep the oil uh, fresh and, and keep the light going. He really wants to, though. <laughs> and the whole time, William Defoe character says, no, you're not fit. I take care. I tend to the light. And uh, about 40 minutes in, he tries to go up the stairs, but all he sees is a, it's like a monstrous like tell. It's like and, a, then, and then like we're a- also intercutting here in montage areas during sleep where Patterson is seeing, he, he's imagining and seeing things. He's, he's dreaming things that are strange. What's happening? What's the tell? Is that real? Is that all dreams? Are we in two different worlds because are we in the dream world and then back to reality are we in psychosis where are we with these strange things we're seeing with mermaids and tells and and what's this world help me help me solve this this riddle i think he's going crazy okay that's what i thought too and i think it's he's going crazy from isolation and he's seeing these things and you'll notice at first he has these crazy dreams but he wakes up from them right and later on these crazy things happen and he doesn't wake up from them and then you hear defoe talking about how uh the things that 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 pattinson thinks are happening didn't really happen like they've been there for seven weeks he was chopping up the boat like they're, they're just these things i think he was going crazy from isolation yeah that's what okay we're on the same page i i figured it was some kind of psychosis some kind of psychological effect about and I even wrote that in mind, which it's funny because I was thinking something to the along those lines, which is like this is if I I can't define the movie, but I could pull away like this is kind of about a slow descent into like suffering, affliction, and isolation, and what that does to your psychosis. I think that's right, and I think I think Willem Dafoe's character has been crazy for a long time because of the isolation and having the loneliest job in the world. But I also think he's, because he's, he's been insane for so long, he's kind of more well-adjusted to it. Right. And I think he's able to, to he's more comfortable in it. What, uh, we, we get 50 minutes in, and then he's out there. By the way, Patterson's character the whole time is doing all the chores. Who knows what William Defoe's doing? When he's not, here's the deal. When he's not tending to the light at night, he's just farting and shitting and sleeping and drinking beer or alcohol. Right. <laughs> it's so funny, man. It's so funny. But we, th- but right after that moment where we see the tail across the light, and by the way, Def- we do get a glimpse of Defoe at night who looks like he's butt-ass naked standing in front of the light, siphoning energy. <laughs> So here's here's a question. I'm glad you brought that up. Here's my question. I had a question for you. Do you think that's really happening or do you think that's what Pattinson is imagining is happening? Well, look, like I said, I got to watch this again to break it down. What I will say is this, and it it will help answer the question, at least from my perspective. And I'm going to sound like a broken record. I'm going to sound like some wannabe academic who is trying to figure shit out and define things. This to me, there's a duality there. There's a duality of man, right? So the broken record thing, like the duality of man, the confusing nature of how one person can be two things. And I'm not even sure that they're two different individuals. I, I agree. I, I 100% agree with that. 
So I don't, I mean, so is it happening? Is it not? What is happening? What is not like he, it could be him up there, butt ass naked. Which would explain a lot. I mean, does that mean that? Hmm. That's interesting. That opens up a whole, it's another can of worms and it's, it is a, it is a way to approach it. And it's, it could be a cop out academically to be like duality of men. These are the same person. And it's just being showcased in two different characters. Do you know what I mean? I, 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 I see what you're saying. And in another, in another context, in another film, I might agree that maybe it's a little pretentious. Maybe it's a, you know, maybe it's, it's a little too academic this film, I'm not so sure. I, yeah, think, I think it fits. I, I think uh, it actually kind of explains a lot because maybe, maybe Defoe's character has been there for so long by himself and he is so finally he's broken literally into two, two different people. And at the end, the, his younger self kills his older self. I don't know. Because I was curious. And here's the other thing that leads me to that, at least thinking of it is the end. And I don't, I know not to, is, is finally one thing, by the way, we talk about that fight. I got to say again, I'm on a, I want to ask you what your favorite scene is. I'm going to tell you what mine is right now. It is that scene where they start to, uh, they start drinking, get drunk. They dance together. They slow dance together. Then they fight each other, punching each other in the face, like just fighting. But then at the end of the movie, it, there's a, there's a big old, it's a showdown essentially takes him out, throws him in a, in a, in a hole up. Uh, but here's the deal. That hole was pre dug. No, it was. Okay. So there's, there's, oh. one. so he throws Defoe in the hole, buries him alive or attempts to, and then tries to steal the keys to the, to the top door of the top uh, latch of the, of the lighthouse. But while he's doing that, and while he's fighting him and punching him nearly to death, while Patterson's character is just, you know, punching, it's intercutting. And we're seeing uh, William Defoe as Poseidon or Neptune. We're seeing the mermaid. We're also then we're seeing like an old, a gentleman in, in these various montages, which, by the way, to try to cover this quickly, there's a lot of cool editorial montages in this film that make it confusing and absurd, but also fun. And in those, there's an older gentleman with white hair. So I'm not so I'm not unconvinced that it's actually William Defoe is like you said, it's it's is it is is like, well, let me rephrase this. Let me rephrase. Let me step back when they're fighting and he's throwing him in that grave. It cuts to an older gentleman with white hair with a mustache that looks kind of eerily similar to Patterson. There's, yeah. there's, there's, there's common features in their look. Here's that's a good point. So here's something that's kind of tripping me up with this theory. And I like this theory a lot. I think, cause when I was watching it, I was interpreting that the old guy with the white hair is um, Pattinson's old boss who he, he, he killed or let die while he was working the job uh, in, with the logging company. So that's, and, and to me, that was his guilt coming back at him. And that's probably that makes sense. crazy. So that's how I interpreted it. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know. That's kind of now I'm now I got to rewatch this. I got to go back and, and, and develop this theory further. Cause I'm, I'm well, on that's a, something I think we can definitely dig into. Tell me about your favorite scene. Give me a favorite scene in this movie. I, so 
I have always, are you scared of the water, like the ocean? Um, you know, what's funny. I think we talked about this before. As I've gotten older, I get more scared of things. Yeah. Well, same. <laughs> Which I guess would make sense when you're young and naive or you don't have as much logic or thinking. You don't think things through. You're not as scared. Uh, I'm not frightened of the ocean. No, I, I'll go swim in it. But I do think I will be attacked by sharks. See, yeah. See, the, the, the stuff in the ocean never scares me. And I the understand. stuff in the ocean frightens the shit out of me because it's so big and you can't see shit underneath your feet. Plus, I mean, I understand it because you're in their domain. Yeah. Like, the shark wants you, man. You can't get away from him. You're done. He's made for the ocean. You're not, you know, no. so you're, you're done. Uh, so I'm not, I, here's, the, here's the, I'm not afraid, but I'm also a little bit. <laughs> and I understand that. So for me, I love the ocean. Like I, I, I you know, I, I spent a lot of my childhood in, in Southern California. So I, you know, I was surfing and, and bodyboarding and scuba diving and, and spearfishing and all that kind of stuff. I love the ocean. But when I was a kid, I did get caught in a, uh, it was an undertow and a riptide. Rip mm -hmm. And that was the scariest moment of my life. I thought I was going to die. I was probably pretty close. If some guy didn't pull my cousin and I out, probably be dead. But ever since then, I've had recurring nightmares of giant waves. Like uh, at the end of um, the last Star Wars film, the, the Rise of Skywalker. Right. They're fighting on the... And those waves, like that is straight up from my nightmare. That is what the waves look like. So when they are in the, in the, the house and the waves start crashing through the window, that was terrifying to me. Because that is like... It's the unpredictability and the power of the ocean that scares me more than anything. I think that's that makes a lot of sense. And, and also, like, when he's trying to drag the boat out and you've seen the, the waves just splash everywhere and just the idea of him getting in a little boat and going out there was terrifying to me. But as I – it probably made pretty clear uh, in the time we've been doing this podcast, I love things that scare me. Like, to me, it, there's something infatuating about it. So anytime the ocean was rough and we got to see that – was 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 a, a, a moment I really liked. Like, I really loved, I think the, my favorite scene was when the waves are coming through the window. And I, I think that was the same scene they're fighting. I can't remember. But when they wake up and the the place is flooded, like just the idea of, and, and how they did, how they were able to work in those conditions with just water up to their ankles. And he's puking in the water. I, like just that, that scene of the damage done to that place. There's something about it and I can't really explain it. That was really intriguing to me, that visual image. And again, the, the sound design of the water and all that kind of stuff. I really love that. So not your traditional, you know, favorite scene type of thing, but that was my favorite uh, part of the film. Yeah. Like an, an environment and nuance to what, what's happening yeah. environmentally in the, in the, in the, in the movie. Um, no, that's good. Uh, a couple, I got to say, before we get it, we're going to we're gonna keep this a little shorter, but I want to read. So what's interesting about this, we're going to jump right into our Google reviews. Okay. Now there's 1,200 reviews in here. So this is a, a, a well-reviewed film. Okay. Well, it, real quick, I do have a, a couple people uh, reached out. I mentioned um, that I watched The Lighthouse. A couple people reached out. And yeah. I mean- quick these are these are are, are are quick they're not full is this from the twitter feed this is from twitter yes nice so brain the steve he's a he's awesome follow on twitter 
Follow him. He's at AI underscore Steve. He said the movie is insane. Uh, he likes it, but it's insane. And then uh, we went on to kind of talk about um, about Pattinson and how he is able to turn his career, not his career, but his whole the whole perception of him around by taking roles like these. And he mentioned this, and I didn't think about this, but I thought this is actually a really good point. He said another actor that is able to do that was Natalie Portman. Uh, he said during the Star Wars prequels, not the best dialogue, makes her look like a mediocre actress, but then boom, V for Vendetta, and she's amazing. And that's Black a good Swan. point. Yeah, Black Swan. Uh, so I, I think that's a good point. It Because those prequels were poorly written and actors like uh, you look at uh hayden christensen and some of the the dialogue he had to say in those those prequels are it's so bad that it makes him look bad but she was able to turn it around so that's a good point and then andy morgan who's another great uh follow he also um he said it was his favorite movie of 2019 and i am just so disappointed in myself that I did not watch this movie before because I love the witch and i just, yeah, it's just a bummer, man. I wish, I wish I could have gone through the last two years having seen this movie. Yeah. This, this, this movie is making me want to go back and revisit the witch and should, give it a second chance. You should you got to, well, let's hear what Paul says on Google. All right, Paul. I'm just, not even these guys, even these bad reviews, they it can't spoil my mood. It can't. This one's gonna make you laugh. I already know. Okay. <laughs> Just as lighthouses signal a warning to nearby ships to avoid their potential doom, I will attempt to do the same with this film to anyone lured in by the cast, director, or overwhelmingly positive reviews. Oh man. That was actually the one of the more well-written. Bad like, reviews. I like. You know? I like the metaphor. I like. Yeah. I like. I like that Let a lot. Let me give him another couple sentences. Let's see if he can keep up his momentum because that was pretty good. That was good. I'm gonna give. I don't agree with him, but I'm gonna give Paul uh, a few points just for good writing. Uh, I, yeah, because usually when we're when we're when you're reading these, when you're struggling to to make sense of these, it's usually, it's usually pretty tough, man. It's usually pretty bad. So I, yeah. I think Paul deserves a good grade on this one. First off, let me preface this with a couple of things. I love pretentious movies from time to time. And unlike William Defoe's semen, none of the symbolism went over my head. Being in part to having it all subtly, all of this, all the subtle, all the subtle of a foghorn, I can appreciate the raw experimental cinema but this is the cinematic equivalent of being trapped in a dark cave with a sex offender whilst being forced to witness your own demise through the wrong end of a telescope. Dude, what? That is harsh. Four more paragraphs. I won't read them all. But Do you- all I, hey, I'm going to give, look, 347 people found that helpful. And I will say this. He's wrong. He's but, totally right. hey, at least he can write and he articulated his point. I agree with, I mean, I agree with absolutely none of his points, but I, I, you're right. You're absolutely right. Would you call this experimental? 
The only way I would call it, I don't know that it's in its truest form, probably not, but I would say that, you know, it, it, because it leaves so many open-ended questions, you know, a lot of times, if you think about traditional narrative, we're thinking about a resolute ending. And I think just having so many it's not about answers. This movie's not about giving answers. It's about making questions. So I think it's a, in that sense, it could, it could peel into experimental a little bit, but I don't, I don't, I don't consider it a, I wouldn't consider it overly experimental or, you know. I, I, I agree. And I think I'd say that because it works. Like if you oh, look yeah. at the ratio, the black and white, I could see in a lesser film that not working and that feeling a little pretentious, but I don't, this could not have been done any other way, you know, like it just, it couldn't, even with uh, the, the dialogue and in the use of language, I don't know about you. I had to turn on subtitles at times because I didn't understand what was, what was being said. I always watch with subtitles. <laughs> I, know, I actually learned that trick from you. It's brilliant. Uh, I just like, but you bring up a point too, which is like, if even if the short scenes in the montages where you see a mermaid or you see the, the, the tentacles of the, the, the Poseidon octopus type creature, what's interesting to me is how they film that and created those in the production design, because they actually feel, although they look good, they did a great job. They feel twenties. It does. It feels like an old monster movie. So if they had made those, um, props, it feels as though they made it and resembled something you would have seen in the 20s, you know, 20,000 leagues under a sea or something like that was came from that era. And so it, it, they did that flawlessly. I thought they did it fantastic. Agreed. Let's read a couple more real quick here. Okay. Now here's, here's a, a four out of five. Technically this film is a pure work of art shot without color in a nearly square aspect ratio, blah, 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 blah. I don't, he, he's, he's, he's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let me get this one. Wow. It's still with me. It was genius, unique, and just what I needed to take a brain break. The performances were spot on and the set production directing was alluring. I knew one minute into the film that I'd be glued and I'm very, and I'm a very picky film watcher. I agree with all of those points. That was good. That was a good one. Especially when, when you think about it, if, if you're just hearing us talk about it, there's no way you're thinking to yourself, this would be a, th this would be a brain break, but it kind of was like, I was fine with shutting off the part of my brain that needs to figure out what's going on and just enjoying the aesthetics of this film that to me, which is crazy. That never happened. I never do that. Yeah, what's interesting, I mean, in, in today's day and age, you would think that initially that first minute or two, there might be a quick, uh, we're, we're, with so many options and so many things to do, like, I'm not going to stay into this one just because of what it is, black and white, right. old school look, like all that stuff. And, and you're, you're right. I think it actually rolls the other direction for me too, which is I, it became more intriguing in some way. Yeah, crazy. Can I say this too? And then I'll read this last review, which is, you know, in a world of sequels, franchises, prequels, et cetera, originality matters. And I loved it for that too. We've scored, we've actually lucked out in a, our last couple films. Yeah. With that in Absolutely. mind. Okay. Here's one more. Eight months ago, Yoli. 
This was the oddest, most physically nauseating movie I can ever recall seeing. It has a definite, it has definite Hitchcock vibes, which I appreciate, but that value was lost when compared to the constant illustration of gratuitous vulgarity. The main characters are obviously mad from isolation and what seems to be a hallucinogenic moonshine, constant stress and hardship. The, un the unanswering seduction of the mysterious light reminded me of scenes of the briefcase, briefcase from Pulp Fiction. <laughs> what? You know what? They, okay. I get, I, get where they're, I get where they're going. That actually brings up a good point. Um, could, there have, could it have been a hallucinogenic that they were drinking? Well, here's the deal. We know that he's in some form of sobriety, Patterson's character originally. He declines the first drink. Then they take the drink out of the well water. We know that that's contaminated, right? So you can't drink it. All you have to really drink is whatever's in the, the alcohol and who knows what's in it. Yeah, and at, at the end, don't they make their own? So, and then they brew their own, whatever it is. So she's not, uh, this, this reviewer is not far off, maybe. And that's when shit goes haywire. That's when it starts to light up. It's yeah. crazy. So, huh? maybe. Look, this has, it's not bad. We're at, okay, I'm going to jump right into our ratings here. Look, those were okay reviews. Look, here we go. 90% from the critics. That does not surprise me one bit. Neither. 72% from the audience. And a, a relatively high for IMDb, 7.5. Hmm. I, 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 yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Alan, give me a, give me a rating on The Lighthouse. Real quick, there's, there was, uh, this is on Amazon Prime. So if you got Prime, you can watch it for free. Uh, and there is a ton. Well, if you watch it, it has the, the x-ray feature where it shows you tons of trivia. There's a ton of trivia on this one. One that uh, it kind of stood out to me. It's not a big deal, but I thought it was interesting that Defoe and Pattinson did not talk to each other during the shoot other than w when their characters were on screen together. Uh, which I actually think is it was a very smart move. So they didn't even know each other really as they were doing this, which is perfect if two strangers are going to be stranded on a rock together. Uh, and it, they, until they had their their, their first conversation happened after the movie had wrapped, and then they found they really liked each other. But I thought that was a cool little a cool little trivia. Yeah, there's so many things that we haven't covered due to time constraints on this podcast and we just can't go. And plus we need to do a rewatch. I mean, this is a definite rewatchable and not right. only that to really break it down, this has the eraser head qualities, but there's so many trivia, so many things. So that is an interesting point though. Cause I think it played into the dynamic of the performances really well. This, this one might deserve a part two at some point when we can really dive into the theories behind it. I and need, I need one or two more rewatches. Yeah, I agree. And maybe get some of the, the listener theories, too, because I love to hear what other people think. Yes. People smarter than me. I'd love to know what they think of it. Um, Absolutely. And all the listeners of the show are way smarter than me. So uh, that's a good well to dig to. Um, I, I, I love the movie, man. I don't know. I don't know what I watched, but I know I love it. And for all the reasons we just said, I think it might be a little long, but drags a little bit at, at, at moments. But other than that, I, it's, it's great. It's, it is uncomfortable at times. It's not unwatchable. It's not like a cringe moment where you have to turn away. But there are moments where I felt extremely uncomfortable. 
And I think good movies can do that and still keep you engaged. And this one definitely does it. I'm going to go out on a limb here, Gabe. And this is high praise for me. This is better than Civil War on Drugs. Wow. Now, what did you come in? That was a few podcasts ago. What did you come in with that one? That one I came in with eight with an 8.4. And what did I come in with? A 7.4. Okay. For Civil War on Drugs. This is better. This is better. Wow. Alan, Alan really is I enamored like by this movie. I, I, and may, my score might drop once I watch it again. I don't know, but I, I, I highly doubt it. Man, um, I kicked it up while we were discussing it. I kicked up my rating. And now that I'm thinking about it, I got to kick it up again, I think. But I don't want to go too high because it's not in the, in the chainsaw realm. You know what? Uh, I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to go 8.5 seagulls. Nice. And you know what? We didn't even talk about this. I know. There, that's what I was going to say. There's so many nuances we couldn't even, we didn't I, even cover. I thought it was hilarious when he killed that seagull. Oh, when he was smashing it? <laughs> but it's a dark humor. So funny. Oh my gosh. It was fantastic. Um, yeah. So many things we didn't cover. This definitely warrants a follow-up podcast at some point. Um, look, this, as the critics say, is it, it's a, I think this is a fair assessment. It's a gripping story. I think it's brilliantly filmed powerhouse performances. I mean, just if you want a lesson in acting, you want a, you want a freaking tutorial on how to be an actor or at least what to expect at, out of greatness in terms of acting, you should watch this movie. I, I Even didn't... if you hate the story or the narrative, if you want to study how to be, this is it right here. I didn't see when I was uh, doing my research, did either of them get nominated for anything? I don't think so. The only thing I saw was best cinematography. Which I agree with. Which I agree with. All the things they did to recreate it and make it feel authentic in 19... Yeah, absolutely. But I didn't see anything in terms of performances from the Academy Awards. I'd have to go back and see what other films came out that year. But, I mean, sound design, editing, cinematography, director actor supporting actor to me the they all absolutely could have and should have been nominated all of those categories and probably more than i'm not thinking of yeah i mean what what i'm seeing here and i don't know if it's in the the same year you know because everything kind of changes it's 2019 it came out it would have been 2020 it would have been last year no or no uh, it was 73rd Let's see. Academy Awards. So the, the 73rd Academy Awards. I'm seeing a lot of. I'm sorry, the 93rd. I said 73rd. Yeah, 2020. So, so I guess it did come out in 2020. Regardless. Did it really? Because I, I thought it came out in theaters. And in 2020, the theaters would have been shut down. unless It, it came, came out in 2019, but you know how they work it. That's mid, mid-year 2019. It'd be 2020. Okay. Um, so you had. Uh, Riz Ahmed, Sound of Metal, Chadwick Boseman, Anthony Hopkins, Gary Oldman, Stephen Young. So, nope, nothing there. It was just uh, best cinematography. That was it. That's that's bullshit. I'm sorry. That's Pattinson. Obviously, Defoe, but Pattinson should have been nominated. I think. I mean, I could go on and on. I, I don't. That's ridiculous to me. 
I mean, that, those are big hitters that they're going up again. Those are some pretty good actors themselves. But yeah, the acting in this is, is brilliant. Powerhouse. Yeah, I'm looking at the movie thinking, okay, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of curiosity build, a lot of confusion. When you're looking for that roller coaster ride of uncertainty, this is the movie to watch, at least initially on your first viewing. Maybe you'll start to establish some theory later on. I think we're blending into an idea about the duality of man. We have something potentially going on. Uh, I don't want to overthink it, but I think that there might be something there. Um, for me, uh, this movie, uh, when I was thinking about my rating, I was, I was definitely thinking a racer head and I, and I know I really scaled it up for a racer head. I don't want to go above a racer head. And this is where I don't know where I sat on a racer head. I think I was in the nines. I think so. I think I was in the nines on a racer head. Now on the first viewing, like I said, I piecemealed it regrettably i need to go back i need to rewatch it give it a full sit down not piecemeal the view i'm going to come in with 8.7 i <laughs> can't i have too many to think about 8.7 mermaids there it is nice let me say, yeah. oh, wait, 8.7 wooden carved mermaids. <laughs> I'm going to end with this, Alan. I have a, a, a trivia here that I found from the X-Ray on Amazon, which I loved. This is a good outro for this film. We definitely will come back and visit it at some time. When asked to describe the movie, director-writer Robert Eggers always used the same choice of words in every interview. Nothing good can happen when two men are trapped alone in a giant phallus. And that sums up the, mu the movie perfectly. All that needs to be said. And this is Gabe and Alan with the Tame Aperture podcast, reviewing The Lighthouse. Check us out at tameaperture.com for more reviews and suggestions on new movies to review. Until next time, everybody, Tame Aperture signing out. The Tame Aperture Podcast is produced by Dutch Angle Pictures in association with Studio B Productions. Listen, watch and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify and YouTube.